Father in heaven, we thank you for the Sabbath day, and we thank you for the opportunity to come before you. I pray that Jesus Christ would be uplifted and glorified in a very powerful way today, that it would draw all of us nearer to him, and that we would see him in the clouds someday very soon. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. The sermon title for today is The Matchless Charms of Christ. And I'll have to say that I, I always feel that I get the greatest blessing by preparing for giving a message. And this message for me is no exception. Speaking about Jesus Christ, there's nothing better in the world you can talk about, especially the matchless charms of Jesus Christ. And what is it about Jesus Christ that would cause us to say that he has matchless charms? Well, think about our name as a people, just sort of as an introduction. You know, our very name itself suggests that we must really love Jesus because our denominated name is Seventh-day Adventist. And the second part of that name, Adventist, describes a group of people with the hopeful expectation of something, of the Advent, the second Advent of Christ. Now, if we have a hopeful expectation of his coming, that must mean that we're excited about him coming back. And we're going to talk about why we are excited about Jesus Christ coming back. Because in Jesus Christ is the matchless charms that is unmatched by any human being here on this earth. And I want to point out as I was preparing for this talk, it's interesting to me that two of the more prominent preachers in the Advent movement history had prominent experiences of conversion when they experienced who Jesus Christ is. And these two preachers who I'm sure all of you will recognize by name, and I'm sure there are many others, but these are the two that I'm going to focus on today. These two preachers were E.J. Wagner and William Miller. And I'm going to start by reading a letter by E.J. Wagner that he wrote shortly before his death, and in it he describes an experience that he had in 1882. And this is what Elder Wagner says. I began my real study of the Bible 34 years ago. At that time, Christ was set forth before my eyes, evidently crucified for me. I was sitting a little apart from the body of the congregation in the large tent at a camp meeting in Healdsburg, California, one gloomy Sabbath afternoon. I have no idea what the subject was of the discourse. Not a word nor a text have I ever known. And I'm sure some of us have had that that experience. Maybe we went to church one day and we remember everything else but what the preacher said. Usually that's a bad thing. But in this particular case, it wasn't. And I'm sure whoever was preaching gave a fine sermon. 
but this is what Elder Wagner says, all that has remained with me was what I saw. Suddenly a light shone round me, and the tent was for me far more brilliantly lighted than if the noonday sun had been shining, and I saw Christ hanging on the cross, crucified for me. In that moment, I had my first positive knowledge, which came like an overwhelming flood that God loved me and that Christ died for me. God and I were the only beings I was conscious of in the universe. I knew then by actual sight that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. I was the whole world with all its sin. I am sure that Paul's experience on the way to Damascus was no more real than mine. Now, notice what happened to Elder Wagner in this experience. He sees Christ set before him, crucified. Not just Christ crucified, but crucified for E.J. Wagner. He saw that. It was real. It wasn't just reading a passage of Scripture and thinking, oh, Jesus died for my sins, that's nice. He saw himself as the guilty sinner that he really was. And he saw in Jesus the loving Savior that he really is. And that moment shaped the rest of his life. And he goes on to say, I resolved at once that I would study the Bible in the light of that revelation in order that I might help others to see the same truth. Don't you think it's important for all of us to see that same truth? Christ crucified, not just Christ crucified, but Christ crucified for me. And that has an effect on my heart. It changes something. Because I see in myself nothing that is good. And yet I see, even though there's nothing good in me, I see a Savior on the cross crucified for me. I'm not thinking about anybody else. I'm thinking about myself that I'm not, I don't deserve this. I'm not worthy of this, but Jesus still died for me. And the effect that it had on, on Elder Wagner was that he was overwhelmed by this. It was an overwhelming flood for him. Have we had that experience with Christ and him crucified? Is Christ and him crucified an overwhelming flood in our hearts that as we look at our lives and as we look at Jesus and him crucified, it creates an overwhelming flood in our hearts? He had a positive knowledge that God loved him. And if we have that experience of knowing that God loves us, knowing that Christ dies for us, it changes everything. And this happened in 1882, and obviously, as history shows us, Elder Wagner fell in love with Jesus Christ. He became a messenger of the righteousness of Christ. And we'll talk about that a little more. The other person who had a similar experience was Elder William Miller. And this is a paraphrase of Elder Miller's experience in Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers, Volume 4, page 461. As you know, William Miller grew up in a Christian home, but then became 
a deist, and he wasn't really sure how involved God was here on this earth. Maybe God created the world, but then he just set it apart and, and stood aside and let earth take a natural course, and he was uninvolved in the lives of the people who lived here on this earth. And out of respect to his mother, he would come to the local Baptist church, and William Miller was a well-accomplished man, and he would have to listen to preachers who weren't very interesting to listen to, and he told his mom that he might just have to stop coming to church because the sermons were too boring. And so she quickly told some of the elders of the church, hey, if you get him to read some of the sermons, maybe he'll come. And God's hand was clearly in this because on one Sunday morning, William Miller had his experience. Some of you probably know this, but it's good to hear it again. Miller was asked to read the selected sermon from Proudfit's Practical Sermons, this time on Isaiah 53. In the midst of the presentation, he was overwhelmed by the sense of God's goodness and his loving provision for lost sinners. Notice the similarity of experience here. Elder Wagner is overwhelmed by a sense of God's love for him. William Miller is overwhelmed by a sense of God's goodness and his loving provision for lost sinners. Do you think that had anything to do with them becoming powerful preachers for Christ? They experienced this overwhelming sense of God's goodness. And notice what what happens here. He continues on. It says, The redemptive character of the Savior as an atonement for sin was vividly impressed upon him. He could not go on. Overpowered with emotion, he sat down weeping, having the deep sympathy of the congregation who sensed what was happening and were weeping with him. How many times have you come to church and you hear a preacher present such a moving testimony of God's love that not only does he break down weeping, but the rest of the congregation does as well. But that's the effect of Christ and him crucified. When Christ is set before us on the cross, if we by faith can grasp that concept and see Jesus and look at him square in the eyes and see by faith him looking back at us, we will be overwhelmed by the goodness of God. Our lives will be changed. And as you can see, you know, we talk about Elder Wagner and how he gave a logical defense of righteousness by faith. William Miller, how he gave a logical breakdown of the 2300 days and of the second coming of Christ. But as logical as their sermons were, those messages were shaped by the experience they had with Christ at the beginning of their ministry. If they did not see Christ and him crucified set before them, it's likely that their preaching would have been very different and much less effective. So I'm going to actually read what Elder Miller himself says about this experience. And he says, Suddenly the character of a Savior was vividly impressed upon my mind. It seemed that there might be a being so good and compassionate as to himself atone for our transgression and thereby save us from suffering the penalty of sin. I immediately felt how lovely such a being must be. 
Elder Miller experienced the matchless charms of Christ. Notice he immediately felt how lovely such a being must be and imagined that if I could cast myself into the arms of and trust in the mercy of such a one, I would do so. And he goes on to say, I was constrained to admit that the scriptures must be a revelation from God. So notice what happens. When Elder Miller experienced the love of God, that gave him faith in the word of God. Because if a being is so lovely, so wonderful, so amazing, he's not the type of person that's going to set forth his word before us and have it full of lies. It's a revelation of his love to us. So we can trust his word. And so William Miller's experience from that point forward was based on his understanding of God's love and that his word was a revelation. He says, they became my delight. So when we love God, his word is a delight. It's the best thing. And in Jesus, I found a friend. Have you found in Jesus a friend? Is he altogether lovely to you? Do you see in him the matchless charms that he has for us? He is set before us, crucified for us, that we can be saved even though we are sinners. It's interesting, a lot of times when you talk about the Millerite history and William Miller, a lot of times people focus on how they were wrong about the date, and are wrong about the event, even though, as we know from, from our study of Scripture, that they were right about the date. They were just wrong about the event. But who were the Millerites? What was their driving passion? Was it to go around and scare people into trying to get ready to go to heaven? These people caught the same passion and fire that William Miller did, and that was of Christ and him crucified. And the reason they preached with so much passion and with so much power about the second coming of Christ is because Jesus was their best and dearest friend. So they weren't going around and saying, okay, let's have a study of prophecy and hopefully by the end of the study you'll be so scared that you'll um, accept Jesus and maybe you'll be ready when he comes. That's not what the Millerites were doing. The Millerites were showing the logical revelation of God's word and the immeasurable love of God, the matchless charms of Christ. And so when you put the two together, it's like, look, the best person in the whole universe is coming back in a few years. Don't you want to be with him? Look what he's done for you. And that is why the Millerite movement had such great power. And it started with William Miller's experience back in that Baptist church, seeing Christ and him crucified as a loving Savior, studying from Isaiah 53. And I thought that we would do well to look at some passages from Isaiah 53. Isaiah is often called the gospel prophet of the Old Testament. And we can especially see why when we come to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 is a messianic prophecy before Jesus came to this earth. Starting in verse 2. 
For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. So Jesus wasn't a flashy person. He was very simple. And I'm thankful for that. Because I definitely wouldn't ever be accused of being flashy myself. Obviously, I can't say that I'm like Christ, but I hope someday to be like him. Amen? Verse 3, it says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. So here we see Jesus. What does he do for us? He's despised and rejected of men, and yet he's coming here to this earth to save us from sin. And as we continue in verse 5, it says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now, if you have a King James Version, you'll notice the marginal reading for the word wounded in verse 5 is actually tormented. So if you're passively reading Isaiah 53, you might say, oh, he was, he was wounded for our transgressions. You know, I've, I've been wounded a little bit in life by this person or that person. But no, he was tormented for our transgressions. And when we see Jesus crucified on the cross, being tormented for our transgressions, don't you think that will make us view our sins and transgressions differently? Jesus crucified on the cross, being tormented for our transgressions, the sins that we have committed, that I have committed, I, Norman McNulty, and for each one of you, you plug your name into that. We have tormented him with our transgressions, but he was willing to go through, that he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And I can understand how if the Holy Spirit came over William Miller's mind, and as he's reading this passage of Scripture, he has to come to the conclusion, what a lovely being this must be. What kind of a person would be tormented for my sins, for my transgressions? Only someone like Jesus Christ, who is God. Notice verse 6. It says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That includes everyone in this room. There's no exceptions. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isn't that amazing? All of us have gone astray, and yet God lays the iniquity on Christ of all of us. We should be so thankful for that. How often do we thank Jesus for what he's done for us on the cross? Our iniquity has been laid on Christ because all we like sheep have gone astray. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. Can you imagine that? Christ being tormented, being afflicted, and yet he doesn't complain. 
And that's a rebuke to me because um, I have a complaining gene in my body. <laughs> and um, I see Jesus, and here he's being tormented, and he doesn't open his mouth. And I won't go there now, but First Peter 2 says, that's the example that Christ has left us, that we should follow in his steps. Who when, was, who was when reviled, reviled not again, and he committed all things to him that judgeth righteously. So Christ didn't open his mouth. He didn't complain. And it's an example to us. As we see Christ lifted up on the cross, as we see Christ being tormented, we have to ask ourselves, Jesus didn't complain up there, so what business do I have complaining? about this little trial I might be passing through. <clears throat> and continuing on in verses 10 and 11, it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, he hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And notice verse 11, He shall see the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. All of those who look to Jesus and accept his sacrifice, that's the travail of, of the soul of Christ. And when he sees it, he'll be satisfied. But he wants each one of you in this room to be among that people. He didn't die for nothing. He died for each one of you. He, wanted, he wants each one of us to have an experience the same way William Miller and E.J. Wagner did when they saw Christ set before them, crucified for them individually, personally. Now, it's interesting in Isaiah 53, it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. So it's interesting that in John chapter 129, the Bible says, behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Jesus was a lamb that did not go astray. We have but he never did. And because of that, we can behold him as the Lamb of God, and he can set a pathway for us to follow. Now, what happens when we behold him? 2 Corinthians 3.18, this is a familiar passage. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. What are we beholding here? Now, we're beholding the Lord, but we're beholding the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Now, I want each one of you to use some sanctified imagination. And in your mind's eye, by faith, see Christ right up here, lifted up on the cross as the Lamb of God, and you see in yourself the whole world, because Jesus would have died if it was just you. You would have been the whole world to him. That's how important you are to him. So you see Jesus on the cross, the Lamb of God. You see yourself as a lamb that goes astray, but he's the lamb that stayed on the straight and narrow, and you look to him. You behold him. As you see Jesus lifted on the cross... Let the Holy Spirit impress into your heart and into your mind what Jesus would say to you if you were the only person here in the room and by faith you saw him on the cross and you made eye contact with him. 
what would you say to him at that point for the cherished sins you're hanging on to? Or would you allow the Holy Spirit to let you see Jesus, to let his eyes make eye contact with you, and for you to see yourself as you really are and say, I need a Savior. I need Jesus. I need him to forgive my sins. I need him to change my life. Because when you see Jesus on the cross, that's what you see. You see a loving Savior with matchless charms who gave up everything so that you could have everything. And so there's nothing too, too big for us to give up. And Ellen White herself said that the message that Elder Wagner as well as Elder Jones gave to this church uplifted the matchless charms of Christ. The matchless charms. What's interesting is that Jesus had matchless charms and God sent a message to this church that uplifted the matchless charms of Christ. Why was Jesus despised and rejected? Jesus was a man with matchless charms. You would think someone with matchless charms would be well-loved and accepted by everyone, right? And yet Jesus was crucified by the people he came to save. And it's a reminder to us that sometimes the way the matchless charms of Christ show up are not the way our preconceived ideas square with. And so Christ and his matchless charms are lifted up, and yet we're thinking, no, I want to do it my way. And what we see from Elder Wagner, what we see from Elder Miller, is that when they saw Christ and him crucified, it changed their lives. They started preaching a message that lifted up Christ and pointed to his soon return. Now, what happens when we see Jesus on the cross? Our hearts should be melted. We should, in love for what Jesus has done for us, give our hearts back to him. Jesus gave his hearts to us, if you think about it. He died for us. He loves us so much. He dies for us. So he gives his heart, his life to us. So what is our response? We give our heart and we give our life back to him. And Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 clearly shows this concept. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says, I am crucified with Christ. Christ was crucified. We see him crucified on the cross. And Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. So when we see Jesus on the cross, we see someone who is altogether lovely. We see in Christ the matchless charms, and we say, you know what? I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. That's Romans 7.18. So I don't want what's in me anymore because what's in me put Jesus on the cross. I want that, our, my Savior who's on the cross for me, I need him. I want him to come into my heart. He gave his heart to me. Let me give his heart to him so that I can have him in my life. So I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. I've given my heart to Christ now because he lives in me. 
And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, that's the faith of Jesus, who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice this. Jesus loved me. He gave himself for me. Plug your name into that verse there. It's not just a generic passage for everyone, even though it is, but it's for you personally. Jesus loved you. He gave himself for you. Our response then is we are crucified with Christ. We give our hearts back to him and we let him live in us because we want someone who has such matchless charms to come into our heart, to come into our lives. And in, it's interesting, Galatians continues this theme. Galatians 5 verse 24 says, And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. So when you see Jesus, he died on the cross for you. Look, are you Christ's? He wants you to belong to him. And if you belong to Christ, look what he did for you. He was crucified for you on the cross. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. And then finally in Galatians 6.14 it says, But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. So when you see Jesus on the cross, you're not living for this world anymore. You're living for Jesus Christ. Because he has the matchless charms that changes our entire perspective of life. We see someone who loves us so much. No human being here on this earth can surpass his love and his matchless charms for us in our life. And so the world becomes crucified to us. It no longer has an attraction because we live for Jesus Christ who is in heaven. Now, <clears throat> if we are Christ's and if the world has been crucified to us because of the glory of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, it would only make sense that we would want to be with Jesus Christ, right? So, <clears throat> the Bible says in Ephesians 3 that Christ can dwell in our hearts by faith, and that's great. We're thankful for that. Christ can dwell in our hearts every day. But that's not the same as being with him in person. And if you've seen Jesus and him crucified for you on the cross and you've seen his love for you and how powerful and immeasurable it is, you'll want to be with him. Not 25 years from now, but today, tomorrow, soon, soon, soon. And that was the message of William Miller and the Millerites. They loved Jesus. They saw Christ and him crucified. So they believed to the saving of the soul of the second coming of Jesus Christ. They are wrong about the event they were right about the date elder wagner and elder jones preached a message that would have prepared people to receive the righteousness of christ and to be ready when jesus came in the clouds and in fact ellen white says that the message that those men brought was the message to the laodicean church now what's wrong with laodicea well we're lukewarm so we have a profession of love for Christ, but 
Jesus coming in the clouds may not be our first priority. Why would that be? Because we haven't seen Christ and him crucified in his matchless charms that generates a response in our hearts to want to be with him forever. Now, think about it this way. Um, all of you who are married can identify with this, and I have a simple illustration that works nicely. Last week, my wife, Joelle, went to Louisiana for a wedding, and she was gone for about four days, and we both missed each other. Surprise, surprise. Um, in fact, she even cried on the drive to the airport. I didn't, my bad, but she cried on the way to the airport. Um, <coughs> And that obviously shows that we love each other and that we enjoy being together. Now, what if I had said, um, after about four days in my heart, oh boy, she's coming back. Okay, well, let's, let's put on a good face and let's bring her back home. All right. Um, or what if I had said to her as I dropped her off at the airport, you know, um, it's really too bad that you're leaving, and I'm definitely going to miss you, but if you want to stay an extra month, <laughs> that's fine. Just take as long as you need, come back when you feel like it, and either way is fine with me. What would that say about my love for her? And none of us say this. I know we don't. But what if we say in our hearts, um, you know, Jesus, I love you, but, you know, just come back when, when you feel like it, you know, whenever. Um, and in fact, if you don't mind, um, let me accomplish some things in this life first, then you can come back. What would that say about how we see Jesus Christ? Have we seen him crucified on the cross for us, for me personally? Have we seen what our sins have done to Jesus. When we see that, when we see his love, when we see his matchless charms, then we're not going to be saying in our hearts or even out loud, you know, it doesn't really matter to me when Jesus comes back. We will be a group of people who live a life of the Advent hope. That's our name here, Advent hope. We have a hope in the second advent of Jesus and we're hoping for it in the very near future because we're tired of being separated from someone who has the best matchless charms and the most love that we could ever find in the universe. We're tired of this old world. We want to be with Jesus Christ because he's changed our lives. He's shown us who we are as a sinner. We see him as our savior. He is not only our savior, he's our example. He helps us to live a new life by faith and yes, we walk by faith with Christ every day. He dwells in our hearts by faith every day. And we have the peace that passes all understanding. And yet we still long to be with the one that we love the dearest and the best. Because we love Jesus for what he has done for us. And in the book of Hebrews, <clears throat> we've studied this in our Hebrews class. But Hebrews chapter 9 verse 28 really sums up. Christianity in our age. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 28 says, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time 
without sin unto salvation. Look, Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. That's our Savior on the cross. He died for us. He bore our sins. That's our Savior. That's Jesus. Do you know him? Do you love him? If you do, you will look for him. And it says, unto them that look for him shall he appear when? The second time. So who's Jesus coming back for? Those that are looking for him. Who are those who are looking for him? Those who understand what Jesus has done for them on the cross. Christ and him crucified. And when he comes back the second time, he will no longer be bearing their sins. He will be without sin. He's blotted out their sins in the judgment. And he will come without sin unto salvation. I don't know about you, although I trust I'm not the only one, but I'm looking forward to the time when Jesus, who is the bright and morning star, the fairest of 10,000, the loveliest person, the one with matchless charms, the one who can fill any void that no human being here on this earth can ever fill. I am looking forward to the time when he comes back in the clouds. Because I've seen Jesus on the cross, Christ and him crucified. He was crucified for me, Norman McNulty. I put him there on the cross. And when I see Jesus like that, it changes how I look at him. And then I look at him as my savior. I also look unto him in Hebrews 12 as the author and the finisher of my faith, knowing that he will help me to run with patience the race set before me in this life, and that he will get me to the end of that race. And it can truly be said that he has finished my faith. And I look forward to that day. So may we look at Jesus in a new way, I pray, after today. May we look at him in a fresh way. Go back and read Desire of Ages. Read through the experience of Christ going through Gethsemane, going through Calvary, Calvary, Pilate's Judgment Hall. All of those things will help us to be drawn to Christ. May we have that experience. And I pray that the name Seventh-day Adventist will reach its fruition and fulfillment very soon. A group of people who remember God as creator who made the earth in six days and rested the seventh, and he's coming back for a group of people who are with hopeful expectation waiting for him to come in the clouds. May we be among that people is my prayer. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ and him crucified. I pray that as Elder William Miller and Elder E.J. Wagner, how their lives were overwhelmed by God's love and for what he has done for us, that we would have that same experience, that we would be overwhelmed, and that our hearts and minds would be converted, that we would give our lives completely to Jesus Christ, so that we would look for him, and that when he comes in the clouds, he would be coming for us. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.